Whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a dancer, performer, singer who came to New York all the way from Melbourne, Australia. It's Emilio Ramos, everybody. Hi, Patrick. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, thank you for being had. It is it is wonderful to talk to you. And uh, we'll definitely, uh, Australia is a big thing in my house right now, uh, I have to tell you, because my little girls are almost five and they watch bluey over and over and over and over again and so they are <laughs> very fascinated in the country of australia i have i have sisters <laughs> around the same age and they also die for blueies I'm so sure. i understand i understand the rage i understand the rage and australia's <laughs> got such good kids tv i mean land of the wiggles hello yeah you are that's true that's true a huge musical obsession of mine for a long time so so thank you for your, your cultural export from your nation. It is it is brightening our home every day. But we're not here to talk about Bluey. You're here to talk about... Flower Drum Song. When I have a brand new hairdo With my eyelashes all in curl I float as the clouds on air do I enjoy being a girl When men say I'm cute Funny, and my teeth aren't teeth, but pearl. I just lap it up like honey. I enjoy being a girl. Specifically, the new Broadway cast recording. I did have to uh, just make yes. sure more specific that I am <laughs> thoroughly obsessed with the 2002 revival. It's a, um, it, this is one of those rare revivals where you have to be very specific because it is two almost entirely different shows that you're talking about. Totally, totally. And I, you know, in, in preparing to come on the show, I, I obviously did a re-listen of this album and I just, I absolutely love it. But I went on Wikipedia just to like brush up on my facts about it. And they have the synopsises, the synopses, I guess, of the original plot of Flower Drum Song and the new plot for this 2002 revival. And it's so interesting how these beautiful, iconic, amazing songs fit, I think, rather well into two really different, very different, really both kind of wacky, zany stories. Yeah, it comes at a really interesting point in Rodgers and Hammerstein's career because they're coming off of I mean, three massive shows with with the Oklahoma and and Carousel and South Pacific, and then a string of flops. Most mm-hmm. notably, in here, I mean, Alleg- people have different opinions about Allegro, but I think we can all agree that Me and Juliet and Pipe Dream are are not what you'd call stellar accomplishments in musical. Not, not stellar accomplishments, but the the encore's Pipe Dream recording. Mm-hmm. I, I do remember, like that came out around the time I moved to New York, and I was like, this actually, it was a good moment while I was in school to really sort of come to terms with Rodgers and Hammerstein as this really kind of amazing breadth of work that was so varied and like they really did it all and whether or not it it succeeded or it flopped they were able to they're so amazing they were able to 
really hone in on like what the tone of the show was, depending on its setting, its characters, the source material. They really were able to focus in and be like, all right, what's the specific culture that we're dealing with? And how do we write that? You know, from our point of view, from their very limited point of view, we can mm-hmm. say, but they at least always attempted to be like, what's the universe in which this this thing exists and how do we musicalize that? How do we dramatize that? And that's, you know, that's the foundation of why we're here and why we do what we do. Sure. And it is, I feel like, I, I mean, it's not quite like when Gilbert and Sullivan did the Mikado and their version of Japanese <laughs> culture. But every time, I mean, there's two different plays where Oscar Hammerstein and Richard Rogers tackled uh, Asian culture. And both times I always feel like they are, or at least Oscar Hammerstein, I will say, is trying his best to be representative and true to his. Now, I just think he probably had a lot of bad information with some of this stuff. Yeah, and 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 limited information. You know, yeah. it's a time when like global cultures, unless you were friends with immigrants or children of immigrants uh, in wherever you were from, all you really have, unless you travel there, is encyclopedias those at the time you know take years to get updated uh you know word of mouth about other cultures you know is sort of the only way you get to know something because there was no information super highway you know not like everything is at the tip of our fingers like it is now and that is a reason why nowadays even you know in 2002 when this revival happened there's so much information available now to be like, why don't we try to do this right? Why don't we try this again and really try to come at it from a more sensitive angle? And I've now done two revivals on Broadway where that has sort of been the central thesis of the revival. It's like, Mm -hmm. let's go back to this thing and like figure it out. And it's kind of an amazing process to, to watch and, and sit through and be aware of because you have to be reverential of the original material, obviously, but you also have to look for gaps where you can be like, well, what do we know now that can help us fill in with this sort of a problem area? Mm-hmm. And it is it is a real, like we say, it's a, it's a teardown of a revival. I mean, it is David Henry Huang came in and really like just completely redid the book still based on which is also interesting to to think that the original book of this musical is kind of a not a teardown exactly but it's it's an offshoot of the novel that this is all based on it right. takes it sort of uses the novel as a springboard and focuses on a, a side character to be the musical and then David Henry Huang took that and really went for the sort of more inspired by the novel sort of route even right. though the the original author uh, cy lee approved of those rewrites which i think is fantastic and uh, cy lee uh was originally a playwright as well mm-hmm. which is something fascinating that i read because it was like i think a reason why the story might endure is because even though it was originally a novel it's a, by a novelist who has dramatic tendencies and it really does uh the story has a very perfect narrative arc where it's like especially in the revival and i really Mm -hmm. love the dhh went for this where it just it ends up sort of in the total opposite of where it began but in that way the two perspectives have come together and in an east meets west that's a little reductive but in an east meets west story in a in a in a story about cultures coming together that's such a great 
way to sort of represent that un- that new understanding. Yeah, because the original is a lot more musical comedy than I remembered it being as I was reading that synopsis. Like it does really end up in a, I mean, a very like super Shakespearean marriage comedy scene where the bride makes a big confession mm-hmm. and it, it enables all the people who want to get married to get married. And that's the end of the original. And <laughs> was then made into a movie, which took any of the sense. The you, that's just so funny. Is that the, the I, reading David Henry Huang's because the movie has a horrifying reputation. And, you know, if it, one of those like if you thought the musical was insensitive, just wait till you see the movie kind of things. Totally. I, I like what David Henry Huang said about the film being a guilty pleasure of his because it was a, a rare chance to see that many Asian performers acting singing great acting. asian performance yeah like the top of their people who got bit yeah. parts and other things are now the entire cast of this movie and it's how the affection for him mm-hmm. sustained of this musical to make him want to rewrite it which i think is a good segue to ask you for the fine folks at home uh to say if you could summarize the plot of the revival version of flower drum song. Sure. Uh, to summarize, it's about a young, it essentially now, so the original novel focused a lot on sort of an, uh, an elder Chinese immigrant who had to sort of come to terms uh, being assimilated into American culture, having fleed the communists in China. This is around the time that the book is published, late 50s, early 60s. Um, and so the novel really focuses on this older gentleman having to, to come to terms with the shift in culture and his children and his family and his world. And Roger Hammerstein's original version sort of shifts the focus to his son, who is arranged to be married in the traditional Chinese way, but is in love with a Chinese-American girl who's totally assimilated. And there's a whole comedy of errors thing and and what have you, what have you. <laughs> so in the revival, it feels like the shift then go. it's still about sort of the romantic exploits of this younger son character but that we shift just a little bit to the left to uh the proposed bride who's just arrived from china and now she is mainly and it's leia salonga in this version and she comes to china after her father has died uh standing up to the communists in prison and she comes to america and she finds herself at a in chinatown in san francisco a like sort of a failing Chinese opera company, which is like already so funny because Chinese opera is, you know, one of the world's largest art forms and it's so grand and it's so big. And the idea of it being done in like a dingy little San Francisco basement Mm -hmm. is just already such a great, (laughs) such a great premise. Um, But, you know, she's a musician and she's a performer in opera. So she sort of, she finds a job there, but the young son who is played in this revival by my friend, Jose Lana uh, is, trying to set up a nightclub out of the space and his girlfriend who is this sort of go-go dancer you know burlesque vixen linda lowe uh, (laughs) is going to be the star of this show and eventually you know melee and ta sort of they're attracted to each other but they're too different and he finds himself attracted to her but she is a little bit naive a little bit innocent you know she's just newly arrived from china and linda convinces her to like be a you know brash american woman and really go after him and what she wants and that sort of puts him off meanwhile you've got the push for the club to from becoming a you know a chinese opera house to this full-fledged nightclub and it's sort of there are all these amazing opportunities for sort of uh 
old fashioned American nightclub numbers. Like, I mean, Chop Suey is so funny. Mm-hmm. Fantan Fanny, that, uh, that Bobby Longbottom choreography just like haunts my dreams. Um, <laughs> but everything, you know, ends up it, all's well in the end and everybody gets married. And it's, it is still a traditional musical comedy, but it has now in the 2002 revival um, a little bit more of a rounded view on feminism. You know, it's set in 1960. Mm-hmm. It sort of gives it a little bit more of a feminist push. And it also, it has, I think, a greater understanding of the situation with, uh, you know, communism in China at the time. And mm. the fact that so many people had to immigrate and San Francisco in the Bay, nowadays we think of as a predominantly Asian part of America, but, you know, it's originally was a lot of people fleeing for that, mid-century American dream, you know, finding themselves displaced and going to the land of opportunity and whether or not that opportunity was there for them or not. Mm -hmm. Which is definitely how this opens. I mean, it has a very sort of like, uh, you know, literally on the boat opening of all the, the, what what has become almost a cliche thing of the Uh immigrants arriving in America, singing about how great life is, is going to be. And you, you, you and the audience sitting there going, oh, man, OK. <laughs> right. But i got to tell you, I love this recording so much because it, I will get to that part of it. It's like a long opening number. Yeah, very it's, about long. In the mi- it's about in the middle of it. Robert Russell Bennett's orchestrations, especially in this, op- the whole show, but especially in this opening number, is so gorgeous. But about halfway through that opening number, this sort of a collage of ensemble members just speaking these beautiful lines about my body crosses the ocean in this cramped tomb i keep my mind fixed on my new life to come my child will be born in america and she will grow up without fear for she will know neither famine nor war when i can do what i want no man will ever be my master when i can say what i wish my lips will only speak the truth when i finally spot the american coastline my lungs will be filled with the sweet breath of freedom father I carry your memory with me across the seas. I think I can't survive whatever lies ahead so long as I don't lose hope. And what makes, I think, especially when he, when which is a lot of his work, when he deals with the Asian American experience, but what I love about David Henry Wong as a writer and as a playwright especially, is that there's this really specific sort of poetic traditional eastern east asian way of like of poetry in the language like there's a lot of sayings and Mm. there's often times you know instead of answering something directly you will sort of get a, a, a challenge or a poem or a riddle so much of the language is specific like that and i think it's true of and butterfly and um and especially of this and the way that he's able to fuse that poetic nature that's so ingrained into the culture mm-hmm. into into English and specifically into Asian American uh, situations where as an Asian American, you can feel such a clash of cultures and to be able to combine those two things to be able to express the experience. I just think he's a master of that. He's, oh yeah. It is. I mean, that's the, the, what you just described is sort of, a, is, is what I've always, I had never had the words for it, but it's what I've always felt about yellow face. It has that kind of yeah, like totally. the tension in the language is so, so completely intense. 
and is really i mean it's it, the phrase east versus west is a cliche but it, it is where he, like in its best sense it's where his writing i think lives in the literal language it has a very mm-hmm. you feel the struggle of the eastern expressionism trying to come through the western language and it can oh. really and it's another reason why soft power is such an amazing mm-hmm. synthesis yes. of his words and janine tesori's music and, and all that is just yeah oh man and and it's something i also feel that in their collaboration and a lot of their work that explored Asia or sort of the, the Eastern part of the world, Rogers and Hammerstein truly understood that. I mean, you mm. look at something like My Lord and Master, which is before that character sort of gets a greater grasp of the English language. Mm. And it's the lyrics in that are structured in a really specific, like, poetic way that sort of keeps coming back to the same thing and you can hear that in I'm going to like it here all the people are so sincere there's a specially one I like I am going to like it here it's the father's first son I like there's a specially one I Something about his face I would follow him anywhere If he goes to another place I am going to like it the way again master world builders because they were like okay how do these people think and what is their language like and how would they express themselves it's so so clever and it's always you know it's one of those things that will keep it fresh every time is that it it's rooted in such an understanding of of something and it is really i mean it's a great example of obviously most of i think what especially people like you and me know about oscar hammerstein in his theories comes from what Stephen Sondheim has said about him in interview. I mean, it's, it's usually through that, through that. I, I consider him to be a reliable narrator on this. So we'll, we'll take his word for it. Yes. But yes. I noted list every time I now listen to Rogers and Hammerstein, you know, a show I haven't listened to in a very long time. I find myself really paying attention to what Hammerstein's doing. And the lyrics in this show are in, like you say, they're incredibly simple. They are, almost distractingly simple in songs like I enjoy being a girl, which is a song I've heard, you know, 10, mm-hmm. 20, every, every high school college recital, somebody sings, I enjoy being a girl. At some point it's, it's in, you know, it's in somebody's range. They're going to sing it. And it, it had the rhymes in that are so basic. You know, I could come up with those rhymes. The rhymes aren't, mm-hmm. the, but it is, but you like, like you pointed out, it is the, there's a reason it's that way. He, this is a guy who can do a lot. He's a very clever right. man but he's holding himself back a little bit to write in the voice of these characters and right. letting Rogers music do the expressive, larger mm-hmm. sort of emotional things to it. It is really quite an achievement. You got to hand it to 
I enjoy being a girl because uh, like you said, it's sort of this amazing thing. And I think it has a lot to do with the original uh, Linda Lowe, Pat Suzuki, who was like mm. a this four foot 11 <laughs> brassy nightclub singer. You know, she had the voice of Ethel Merman, but she was this like tiny Japanese chick and she was, she had a lot of personality and she was kind of a big star, but those simple lyrics sort of play into it, the way I'm I read into it they sort of play into this the stereotype of of you know the lotus blossom the, mm. the like demure uh obedient sort of simple Asian Asian American girl and the character of Linda Lowe is so not that she is an independent go-getting modern American woman and so it's so easy to fall into it could be so easy to fall into the trap of playing those words at face value and playing this girl you know as sort of a, a simple naive lotus blossom you know innocent dewdrop. but she it, the interest, the contrast within the show is that she uses that expectation of her to get what she wants. Mm-hmm. She, she's subverting the narrative. She's saying, if they're going to look at me like this, then I'm I'm going to enjoy it because ultimately that's going to bring me power and, and success and it's going to get me ahead. And mm-hmm. I really, I obviously Pat Suzuki, iconic in the original, Nancy Kwan, stunning in the movie just absolutely jaw-droppingly gorgeous and then sandra allen in the survival sort of uses the two where she is it's so gutsy and it's so earthy but to look at that woman in this production was just like boom like she's so so beautiful sandra allen if you're listening to this i'm a huge fan (laughs) i forgot to ask is a question i ask all my guests i realized i forgot to ask it which i usually start with is how did flower drum song come into your life how did you first encounter this show okay so we were talking about uh the opening number and you know hindsight's 2020 so i i grew up in melbourne i grew up in australia and um you know uh I'm mixed race. My mother is white. I live with her predominantly. Um, my father is from the Philippines. I was a part of a musical theater troupe. Then we rehearsed on Friday nights. It was sort of a statewide thing, but the, you know, the strongest of us, those of us who were really interested in it or, you know, had some sort of like real talent, we all met on Friday nights and we were sort of the top tier and there would be two weeks of shows twice a year and we they rented out this gorgeous old theater and kids from all over the state would like get to come in and have their little night on stage doing little like standardized musical theater numbers and then the big kids like the the kid these kids who had talent would come in and like fill in for like sort of harder more dazzling stuff so they were always looking for big group numbers like essentially it would just be like a night of like 20 musicals and like their best group numbers so that the groups of kids could could get them across Mm. and so I learned a lot of musicals that way I learned a lot of musicals through their like big group numbers because we would do them and I think it was sort of a fantastic musical education because I I knew shows of every variety and I was I'm gonna say the year that this happened I would have been like seventh grade I was one of about three Asian kids in Mm. in the room and for one of the big group numbers, we do 100 million miracles. <laughs> Again, I am one of three Asian kids in the room. So that means there's probably about 25 other non-Asian kids. And we are absolutely performing 
the heck out of this number where it's, it's like, you know, in the, in the survival, it was like people doing Tai Chi and it sort of represents people living in China and we wore like silk pajamas and there were conical hats. And it's like, it's, it's mm. cringy to look back on. <laughs> it's like, because it's like, you know, I'm Filipino. Like you know, it's, it's cringy to look back on that. We're uh-huh. all wearing this and doing this number. But obviously, you know, I loved musical theater and I, I thought this was really interesting because it involved Asian people. So I went and I legally downloaded uh, the entire cast recording because <laughs> it was like available. You know, I used to yeah. LimeWire, TBT. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Basically every cast album under the sun because I just I love musicals so much. And I was fascinated that I knew what The King and I was and so funny because it was my Broadway debut, but I didn't really like it as a show. And the movie mm. didn't do anything for me. Songs didn't really do anything for me. I have a better appreciation of it now. But I loved A Hundred Million Miracles. Mm. And I loved I Enjoy Being a Girl. So mm. the, I would listen to the cast recording, but those those numbers would like get deep rotation. And that was my introduction to it. And then I remember being at AMDA the first year I moved to New York. And uh, we had to like look for, you know, appropriate songs from the Golden Age of Musical Theatre, rah, rah, rah. And I was like, okay, characters that are Asian, let me look through them. And I was, I went back and I listened to the recording and I listened to Phantom Fanny and I loved it. And I went to YouTube and I saw a bootleg of that Bobby Longbottom choreography for the first time when I was 18. And I was blown away by that ensemble. That ensemble on Broadway, I mean, legends, legends. And I've been lucky to work with a couple of them and know a couple of them and call a couple of them my friends. And I just think that that group of people is so special and so iconic in my mind because they just, they, it's, I don't know, it's proof that when you feel comfortable in a room full of other people that you will all shine they it's like a Mm. group of people that look like they were really lifting each other up on stage it's Mm. like it's such a powerful powerful image to see all those faces up on that stage this show is a lot more you know king and i obviously you did it (laughs) so you have a different view to it and it's grown over the years but i will agree with your initial assessment the king and i is really it's two characters and then like some minor characters get some songs here and there, but it's a lot of core, you know, big number chorus yeah. kind of stuff. It's like sound of music actually in that way, where it's, it's a mm-hmm. lot of the same sort of structured songs. One person's leading and a group of children is following. Um, whereas this, I was reminded has excellent character group ensemble numbers peppered throughout and mm-hmm. is, it c- keeps it, 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 it has a strong rotation of, of excellent character moments. Like you say, Fantan Fanny's great. The song that took me off guard, just of how like, how 50s musical theater it was, and I'd totally forgotten about it, is Don't Marry Me. If you want to have a rosy future and be happy as a honeybee with a missus who will always love you, baby, don't marry me. If you want a man you can depend on, I can absolutely guarantee I will never fail to disappoint you Baby, don't marry me So funny. It is such a, like, quintessentially 
like that George Abbott style musical late uh, mid act two musical number for two characters to have. It's so funny. so 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 funny. And one that I was listening to today, and I was like, God, this song is stupid, but it's yes. so good. Is <laughs> gliding through my memory. Mm. Which oh comes yeah, to the act one right after yeah. Fanny. Right, and I used to I I used to skip it on the recording because I would like listen to Fantan Fanny and like mm-hmm. live my gay little life and then absolutely skip the barbershop quartet. Sure, but I was listening to it today and I was like, talk about ensemble, talk about mm. male vocals, yum 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 yum. I am a vagabond sailor. All my friends call me sport. I am a fellow for action. Any storm in a port Now that I'm home and I'm resting Home from over the sea All of the girls who adored me Go gliding through my memory So then how did you came to um, uh, the States from Australia for college? That was your sort of root in it and was it like sort of like i'm gonna go to new york for for college or was it just you applied and then you got in you're like oh well then i'll go yeah i mean i uh i went to a professional high school in australia um and i studied mainly classical dance uh so when i was 18 you know everyone's looking for what the next gig is and i was sort of like i really don't want to be a company dancer i really definitely don't want to do classical dance um you know, and I love musicals and it's always been my passion. So I was lucky enough. I like, I went on a trip with my mom to New York, uh, the winter here between my junior and senior years of high school. And it was like a requirement of my high school that I complete an audition for a professional program um, before my senior year was out. And I was like, well, I want to do musical theater. I'm here in New York. Let me like audition for some courses. Great. And uh, I auditioned for AMDA in New York. They accepted me. Mm. And pretty much as soon as I graduated high school, I was like, well, this feels like, you know, a sign. Go, Someone's accepted you to go study musical theater right in the heart of it all. Uh, You're an American citizen, which I am lucky to be a dual citizen. So there was no sort of real immigration to move here. And I, at that point, I think also... I had been training professionally for a long time and AMD is a really short, you know, sort of two year associates degree course. And I was like, I'm, I don't really want to go to uni for another three or four years Mm -hmm. to learn how to do something that I've sort of already, you know, been running towards my whole life. So I'm really grateful that AMDA is, was there because I was ready to be fast and furious about it. I was ready to get in and get out and like, grab the information to get me started. And I really just wanted to get out and pound the pavement. And as soon as I could, I, I did. Now, was that the trip that you talk about in ensemble where you saw 42nd street with your mom or was that a different? No, that was a different trip. I'm really, I'm really lucky. I mean, my mom is the best and she's traveled quite a bit for work. And there were a couple of times where she was like, well, I have to go for work, but why don't we like build a vacation around it and you can come with. Sure. And so that's sort of the circumstance that happened uh, when I was eight or nine. Um, and we came to New York for the first time and I saw my first Broadway show, which was Aida. And then I saw my Dang second it. Broadway show, which was 42nd street, which was 
absolutely. <laughs> like, a, like if you see Ensemble, you'll see there's like a moment where I talk about it and it's such a defining moment in my life where I saw that Ensemble on that stage and I just thought, well, this is it. This is the life for me. <laughs> so what is it about the Ensemble that fascinates you so much? I think when you watch a musical, the ensemble is, it's not necessarily that they take your eye, although it is amazing whenever an ensemble member takes your eye. I just think mm. that's like such a cool thing when someone makes, someone in a group of people makes such a bold choice that you're like instantly drawn to it. I love that about <laughs> ensemble members. But it really is, I'm obsessed with in any sort of stage show, any sort of theater, when the world feels complete. That doesn't mean that there has to be like, you know, Stanislavski realism, you know, dust on the mantelpiece type of thing. It doesn't, it just means that everyone on stage has a purpose. They're there for a reason. And everyone is telling the same story. They like, they all know the same things. They're all sort of living in the same, on the same wavelength. And it's really disrupting when I know that not everybody is, in the same show, living in the same universe in an mm. ensemble. Mm -hmm. But it's so thrilling when everybody is really working together to make that world. And in a show like 42nd Street, that ensemble is absolutely the biggest part oh, of the machine yeah. working towards oh making it look like that. I think yeah. Wicked is the same, is the same way. Mm. And especially because of the way that Wicked has developed not only a uh a language vocabulary, but a movement vocabulary, like that ensemble really does so much work to make you believe that this is this entire universe where everybody mm. lives like that. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. It is, it is really apparent, as you know, when not everybody is in the same show. I mean, even from, from the, from the top down, it can be, and it's often what people say, you know, it just didn't feel like it worked or it didn't gel for me or whatever. Usually that to me is what the problem is, is that not everybody's doing the same, mm -hmm. the same gig. Who I, I've never asked, had the opportunity to ask this question before, but it's something I've often wondered about. So who is, in your experience, what, not what makes a good ensemble, that's too, too broad of a, of, of a question, but who is the, the sort of the leader of the ensemble in your experience who, who helps the ensemble sort of gel together. I, Cause I, I think that obviously, and the attitude in a rehearsal room, the attitude on, in, on a set or in a show usually comes from the top down to come from however the star behaves, everybody sort of takes mm -hmm. suit from that, but the ensemble can be its own sort of sort of animal as you do different rehearsals, you do more rehearsals, you know, dance rehearsals and things that maybe not everybody's at the whole time. Who is it that really brings the ensemble together in your experience it, it's difficult because i i'm not sure if this is like a, a good thing or a bad thing but i am going to say that i feel like the ensemble really comes together like as late as tech or like the first preview like there's no this world building that i'm describing until you start really living in the world in a coherent way, it can feel, I find rehearsal and tech to be, to feel really disjointed mm. and removed. And it is a marvel when 
a creative team is able to make everyone in the room feel comfortable with each other and comfortable enough to make choices within the room. And that often depends also on like, you know, early dramaturgy within a process, like making sure that everyone's got the right information. If it's based on a real event, like say mm. that if it's set in a very real time, you know, everybody should have a certain amount of research on it. I, I, that dramaturgy is really important just so everyone's on the same, you know, base level. And then I find a rehearsal process where there's not a lot of separation where everyone, ensemble, principals, singers, dancers, where everyone's got a similar focus in mind, that really helps an ensemble to gel together quite quickly. Otherwise, it can feel, especially in older musicals, very separated, you know, and not just, I've done a lot of West Side Stories and (laughs) just the the nature of, you know, legendary rifts aside, the nature Mm -hmm. of that piece is that you are literally in a gang and you spend all your time with that gang, like, Mm -hmm. and you don't really see the other people until you start doing the show. (laughs) When -hmm. you start performing West Side Story is actually when you get to meet and know the other gang. But in it, and so in a lot of all the musicals, King and I was kind of like that too. We just like, we didn't have anything to say. And we were often just waiting to do the ballet. If we weren't waiting to do the ballet, we were like making a stage picture or, you know, making sure that the world felt full. Mm-hmm. But it did feel a little separated, you know, until the cast folks know each other and felt comfortable. So it really, I don't think an ensemble can truly find its groove until the show is like being done until you're at the end of tech Mm. you stop performing and you really get to figure out together what your truly the like nuts and bolts of what your role is because you can know the steps you can know where you come on and where you stand but until you're piecing together your role within the story you can't really begin to to fill in those gaps and create that world so i think that a A good ensemble leader is definitely the creative team, but I think a great ensemble like leads by example and is always supporting each other. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if like, you know, there's obviously residents and dance captains and, you know, people who are in charge of the finer details, but I think an exceptional ensemble supports itself and supports its, supports its own, um, and I've been lucky enough to be in a, a few groups like that where it sort of is like, all right, we're all in this together and we're going to figure out like what we're all doing here. And that's mm-hmm. a remarkable thing to experience firsthand because it's true, true teamwork and it's thrilling. It's interesting that it, I mean, it's, it's such a Broadway experience. I think that it, it happens in the performance because for more your know, regional theaters, community theaters, whatever you're doing outside of Broadway, the run itself being is is the close ended section, you know, from whether it's two performances or, or whatever, even up to like a month. It is the sort of like the weeks in the rehearsal room or when you meet everybody and think, and then it's a lot more like, well, now we're doing the show and it's running for six weeks or yeah. whatever, and then it's over. Whereas in an open ended run, that's really it, it sort of answers, I think, a general question that a lot of people had is how do you keep it fresh if you are really not starting to explore fully as an ensemble member? until you get out in front of people, then that is would be an excellent way to keep it, to keep it fresh and discovering and, and, and working with it every single night to get it to where you want it to, 
to be to keep it alive. That is really it's something I've often wondered about is never is that, you know, the, the juice for me is primarily a playwright. But, you know, it's somebody who likes to be. I love being in the rehearsal room. That's my favorite place in the me world too. to be. Um, me too. And, but once you, but like, I've never had the thought of like, well, cause once, once it's up and rolling, like pretty much, well, that's it for me. I'm, I'm done. You know, you guys have fun and then I'll come or I won't, but it's, I don't have to be there anymore. And how, how you, you keep that on Broadway, especially so much of it is getting it up on its feet so that you can learn what the hell you're doing once the audience yeah. gets in and says, Oh, this is what the show is. Hang on for a second. We've got to, we've got to figure this out. Um, and obviously Broadway has an excellent tradition of ensembles and, and traditions around the ensemble as being sort of the, the, the lifeblood of, of what's going on. But it was one of the things that was so interesting to watch you guys in, in, in the film ensemble um, was the sort of, and I talked about this with Aaron a little bit, is the, the sort of cross-generational truths that maintained mm-hmm through all of you i mean because you said like you're you're one of the first moments is you you figuring out which one of the other people in the room was in that production of 42nd street you saw and when you were obviously you say eight years old and now you're all colleagues in this room together and you all sort of had similar goals experiences but different expectations almost i think would be the word where you and some of the other younger members were a little bit more like no we we need better working conditions we need better this you know better that sort of thing and the there was an older sense of like gosh i wish we'd thought of that when we were your age <laughs> and it's it's crazy and you know it's all knowledge is power again the information superhighway you know when when aaron albano was just getting started you know, the internet is a fledgling enterprise and there's still maybe, you know, a question of whether or not it's going to work or whether it's even worthwhile. And now, you know, my generation, it rules our entire lives. It, mm-hmm. it is everything. It's the reason you and I can right. speak together and, and talk and about it. And then other people can so, hear it. Yeah, it all comes. Uh-huh, so it's, it, it, yeah. it all comes to, it all comes down to knowledge and like whether or not you have access to it. And it is sort of a, a heartbreaking um tenet of the film ensemble are those moments where I can hear uh, some of those more experienced members of that generation be like, I, I really wish that we had set it up better for those of you who are going to continue on these traditions and these legacies and the people who come after us even. And it's, you know, cause you can't blame them for stuff that they just aren't privy to or the fact that they were, you know, doing this thing in a very different time. Mm-hmm. Doing it, you know, pre, you know, 2008 and, you know, money means so many, so much, uh, so many different things now than it used to. And the way that we're paid and the way that we're compensated and the way that we're treated, you know, is all wrapped up in this capitalist system. But it was the the beautiful thing about Ensemble is we were to, able to get together. And even though a lot of what we talked about has to do with that, we were getting together sort of all in the same page of we need to look at each other as humans before we do before we deal with any of that because uh, especially on broadway if we're all in the city and we're all hanging out like inevitably conversation turns to contracts the union how much people are getting you know it's survival Mm -hmm. we're always talking about surviving the city but it's difficult to do so and so you you pass out with your community how everybody survives and how everybody does it but it was so refreshing to get to talk to people with the same experiences and not have to talk about surviving, but it was more about like 
what what do we do next? Because it doesn't feel like what we've been doing actually is surviving. It feels like we've sort of been suffering a little bit. Mm-hmm. It is, and it's what you just said ticked my ear also to the sort of approach I think that that David Henry Huang took to Flower Drum Song and and a, and a a re-examining of a lot of those. I mean, like, see, you were part of the the recent West Side Story revival, which was a re-examining. But we've also we've had the recent the Oklahoma revival, same way of re-examining these texts to try to treat these caricatures, which is really what they were, as people as characters mm-hmm. as as what would the what would the human being version of this really do and really be like in the framework of this of this musical and would you know how do we extract from that caricature humanity and then reflect it back so it's honest absolutely and it's so interesting that you mentioned those these three revivals mm-hmm. flower drive one uh Evo's West Side Story mm-hmm. and Daniel Fisher's Oklahoma is what it re- what all of these really are doing. Not only is it attempting to and succeeding on whatever level, I think all of those revivals succeeded on really imbuing a lot of these characters with a certain contemporary humanity. But really, what those revivals succeeded at was imbuing these texts with politics that resonate. Mm. You know, it's, it's, I think Flower Drum is better off in the revival for its really frank examination, not only of the American political landscape, you know, is there opportunity for immigrants? Can they get ahead? Can they succeed? Are they doomed, you know, to be judged forever based on where they've come from? But also, you know, the problem with communism in China and the fact that these immigrants were fleeing a life that they could no longer bear. I think the show is stronger for its examination of the politics of that time and of those places. I think Daniel Fisher's Oklahoma is so strong because of the political connotations, the the inclusion of people of color, the inclusion on the tour of a trans person, the inclusion of a commentary about contemporary gun violence, you know, for better or for worse, West Side Story also pre-2020, months before the, the death of George Floyd, included the words Black Lives Matter, you know, mm-hmm. emblazoned 90 feet high on a screen, whether or not that was successful and whether or not it was the place of this director to do that is irrelevant because that never could have happened before that moment. Mm-hmm. We never could have imbued these texts with that sort of political sensibility before that moment. So whether or not they work, I am grateful that we get to keep examining these classic texts in that way. I think it's absolutely vital that we keep doing that. Well, and it was a big swing. I want to give a little credit where it's due, not only to David Henry Huang for having the idea to do this for mm-hmm. John So, but also to to past guests of the show, Ted Chapin and the Rogers and Hammerstein organization for saying, do it. Because there is a, a real fault with a lot of these to be very precious with the material so you know it's it's a very familiar sort of sentiment and one that we wrestle with i think a lot with carousel because it's a lot easier it's a lot harder to parse out the problems of carousel and not really rip the plot and the score you know out at the same time but i think Ted Chapin and, and the Rogers, you know, people at, at Richard Rogers and Hammerstein people really were smart enough to be like, well, I mean, the score is great. The book isn't. Is there another book here somewhere that we could do? Is in, and it's an interesting experiment also for, for all involved to sort of go like, can you 
excise the whole book and not to which was David Henry Wong's and he couldn't touch the lyrics at all is there still a show here that is still flower drum song and I think he did it I think it's still at the heart of it and it's still flower drum song which is a really interesting I, achievement yeah. yeah I absolutely agree and I'll also shout out Ted Chapin and the RNH organization because I I know that they when we were doing King and I they really loved the production and King and I you know sort of they were doing what Lincoln Center does best and shout out Mm -hmm. Ted Sperling as well. It was sort of, you know, finding stuff that had been excised and putting it back in and, you know, sort of that opposite thing of like, well, previous revival sort of attempted to neutralize it and contemporize it. And, and Lincoln Center sort of said, no, we want this like full experience back and we can really tackle it from a contemporary angle if we have all the information. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, you know, uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival's Queer Oklahoma, you know, mm-hmm. Rogers Hallstein championed that, and I know a version of that got done in Australia really recently. I, the RNH organization, I think, I think it's clear, and I hope it's clear that the way that we continue to contemporize and recontextualize and examine in modern ways Chekhov, Shakespeare, Ibsen, you know, all of these these great classics, these uh, these canons that will endure no matter what it is okay not to be precious with them because at their core they still have something to say about contemporary life um and rogers and hammerstein absolutely fit into that category and so we shouldn't be too precious with them i think you know the the bold theatrical nature the bold theatrical ghost of Oscar Hammerstein, I think is gently encouraging us at all times to, to go back and, and look at what works and what doesn't and to continue to strive for something that's going to touch people in a specific way. I wanted to ask you about Ensemble a little bit, the film uh, yes. that you were in. Uh, that is an excellent film, as I've said, and I encourage everyone, if you haven't already, or even if you have, go back to Broadway On Demand, watch it again. It's not that long. You can watch this, you can watch it several times. Um, what was, I mean, it's such a, it's such a fascinating thing to watch that. And I told Aaron this when I talked to him about it, that it was so affecting to, it was so long ago and yet it wasn't that long ago when you guys filmed it and the, the hyper contextualization of, of the fact that, like I say, vaccines were not available when you guys shot that and what mindset that put me in watching it. But what I want to ask you as somebody who was, who was, it was in it was what was, why was it important for you to, to be in that conversation? It was pitched to me by Aaron and Aaron is a, a great friend of mine. And when I first started working on Broadway, I was, you know, 21 and I didn't really have a lot of professional experience and he was at my audition. I don't know if he remembers that, but when he taught me, essentially taught me the show when I came into King and I early on to replace and I gravitated towards him because I was so intimidated. That Mm. company was mostly over 30 and I was 21 and Mm. it was a lot of heavy hitters. It was a lot of people I recognized from shows I'd seen. I was obsessed with He Lies Love. I saw it like eight times and here was half the cast Oh, you wow. know, working with me on Broadway, I just, I couldn't believe my luck. And I, I was really intimidated to begin mm. working. And Aaron was so kind and compassionate. And I know now, especially after our conversation in Ensemble, that he is passionate about ushering in new people into our world, into our, 
into our orbit and making sure that they have everything at their disposal necessary to succeed because it's a brutal business. It's like a really brutal way to live your life and we all need to be supporting each other. Aaron pitched it to me as sort of a continuation of the chorus line sessions that Michael Bennett did to, you know, gather material that would eventually go through workshops at the public to become a chorus line. And I just thought, wow, what a great idea, because so much of not only what people outside the business know, but so much of the like legend and the narrative we tell ourselves as Broadway dancers and ensemblists specifically comes from sort of that moment in time in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's just because like that's recorded down on paper and is, you know, obviously one of the most successful musicals of all time. We're all able to pull references from it. And it's, it's so timely and brilliant. And so we're always able to relate to it, but there have been countless generations of Broadway ensemblists since then, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, cast of flower dumps on for example inspiring me to continue on and and find my place Mm -hmm. uh you know in this industry is just one of the many generations and many incredible iconic ensembles that have passed through broadway since then so it it felt like a really great time to record a moment where a bunch of us from really disparate parts of the industry were able to come together and sort of compare notes and it almost feels like, you know, I was watching the State of the Union the other day and it was like the way that we approached it and the way that we talked about so much, it really sort of felt like that. It was like, this is sort of a consensus for all of us about like where we are right now mm-hmm. and how we talk about ourselves and how we define ourselves. And we should check in with each other and say, is this who we want to be? How do we make things better? And that felt really important because again, it just it felt like it hadn't been done or at least it hadn't been recorded in about 50 years. Uh, I have to ask as we wrap up here a little bit though, Amelia, what is your favorite song in Flower Drum Song? I think it's I Enjoy Being a Girl. Really? Yeah, I really do because I love, first of all, I think, okay, I think in the show, I think the song itself, I love, I enjoy being a girl because again, it is a really clever, simple deception of like, you know, these lyrics are very cutesy and girly and simple, but this character is not. And so it just by nature of those opposing things becomes a really interesting character study. And I Mm. think that character is excellent in all versions of the show. I don't really know anything about the script of the original show, but I, like the idea of act one ending with her pouring a champagne bucket over someone's head yes and nancy kwan is great in the movie and again sandra allen call me huge fan (laughs) i will say on this recording just because dance arrangements it's fantan fanny Mm. like that dance break on this recording the band is wailing it's such interesting dance music. Like it makes you want to move, which Mm -hmm. is the dancer has come true. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say my favorite track on this recording is Fantan Fanny. Emilio, thank you so much. Where can, uh, where can people find you on the internet if they want to keep up with what you're doing? Oh, if you really want to do that, um, I am most probably active on my Instagram. It is at little pork buns, uh, buns with a Z. 
God, that sounds stupid saying out loud. Uh, if you want to find me there, it's usually, it's, you know, it's a lot of like Patty Lapone memes and <laughs> selfies and rehearsal studios. So chuck me a follow. Hey, it works. Yeah, hit it. There'll be a link in the show notes. Yeah, take it. <laughs> and Ensemble's now streaming on uh, Broadway On Demand and everybody can, can check that out. And you're on the poster. You're the poster. I am. It's a beautiful yeah. photo by Asian ensemblist Billy Bustamante, who also mm. uh, was in my first Broadway show, The King and I, with me. And I, he is an absolute gem of a human being. He does it all. He's so talented. He's a legend. And I think that photo is maybe one of my favorite photos of myself. So thank you, Billy. Fan Tan Fanny was leaving her man. Fan Tan Fanny kept waving her fan said goodbye Danny you two time and Dan some other man loves your little fanny The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help the podcast grow. If you like movie musicals, then you have to check out patreon.com slash originalcastpod to learn about our bonus podcast, The Original Cast, at the movies. You can follow The Original Cast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany. My thanks to Amelia Ramos for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal.